welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve Thomas, and I'm the manager at our Grayson branch. Recently, my colleague Manoor and I were able to speak with Professor Polly J. Price, the author of the new book, Plagues in the Nation, How Epidemics Shaped America. Professor Price is an award-winning legal historian and professor of law and global health at Emory University. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Hill, Newsweek, and The New York Times, among other outlets. Plagues in the Nation is a narrative history of America told through major outbreaks, and the book examines how law and government affected the outcomes of epidemics that struck America and how those outbreaks have in turn shaped our government. Professor Price, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I am a law professor at Emory University, where I've been teaching since 1995. I also have an appointment at Emory's Rollins School of Public Health. So I teach both public health law. I also teach immigration law and then legislation and regulation within the law school at Emory. And before we get into the book, since this is a library podcast, can you tell us about some of your earliest memories of libraries? Some of my earliest memories of libraries are in Russellville, Arkansas. The Pope County Library was just down the street from where I grew up, and I remember my mother taking us as very young children. I just remember I don't remember a summer without being at the library checking out books. This was a small library with sort of a stone library reminiscent of the Carnegie libraries that were built throughout Arkansas and throughout the United States. It was not actually a a Carnegie library, but it's a similar style. And so those are my earliest memories of libraries. Well, we were talking before that you went to Emory for your undergrad and you used the library there that I used to work at many, many years ago. So Yes, I did. And that would be the Woodruff Library. But I also had good libraries within the schools themselves. So my elementary school had a very good sort of lending library that had age-geared books. And then also the high school had a good library as well. And do you find it useful now of the Emory Law Law School Library now? Does that help with some of your research or anything like that? Well, the, the library specialists help me. So much of it is of research is online now, and I need much more help with that than my students do. So I really appreciate the fact that we have uh, library specialists who know these databases and know how to access them. And so, I, yes, I use it all the time, but I'm using it probably in a very different way than I would have even 25 years ago. For the book, which again is called Plagues in the Nation, How Epidemics Shaped America, What gave you the idea to chronicle the history of the United States through this lens of outbreaks? I started some research projects several years ago that involved a history of how the CDC came to be in Atlanta. I just thought that was an interesting question to look into. From there, it grew out to be – they became part of the Atlanta culture. And then, of course, you know, they are now the largest federal agency outside of Washington, D.C., that had struck my fancy in terms of trying to figure out the backstory for that. And the backstory, I think, is fairly interesting. It's because of malaria and looking at it even further back. So for World War I, for example, in the mobilization for World War I, there's some camps throughout Georgia, southeast. The big important role for the U.S. Public Health Service at that time would be to protect those camps from malaria. So there was a federal presence in the South surrounding military camps first. But then I began to look back even further. I saw court cases discussing jurisdictions between 
Is this a state matter? Is this a local matter? Is it a federal matter with respect to public health issues? It just sparked an interest in me that was primarily historical. So as I studied those episodes throughout history, I began to see some very similar results from each of these or some very similar problems that the country faced each time. And so that's why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write the book to show not only that COVID is not something new within the experience of the United States, but that many of the problems we faced, we actually could have predicted them to some extent based upon some problems that were evident at least or needed to be overcome in prior epidemics. And I'm sure we'll get to that in later questions, but reading some of the book, it's eerie how similar things were during other outbreaks of misinformation and politicians using it. Well, I would say that one constant throughout U.S. history has been that the response to a particular outbreak, local, wherever it is, is ultimately the responsibility of an elected official, whether that's a mayor of a city, whether it's a governor of a state. It's an elected official, and that's been one constant throughout U.S. history. So how are those officials going to respond? That's not so constant. We don't always get you know, the similarity throughout the United States that we might feel like we need in order to mount a national defense. But yes, that's one of the unique features. So uh, other than malaria, which you talked about with CDC, what are some of the other diseases that feature in your book as major epidemics or outbreaks? Well, for anyone who has COVID fatigue and doesn't look forward to reading more about it, actually only the last chapter of my book is about COVID. And so the earlier chapters are all about earlier experiences in the United States. And I began with colonial period to the Civil War, and I discuss reactions to smallpox and cholera primarily, but there were any number of epidemics, pestilences that were really quite problematic and would have a high death toll throughout the nation. And I also look at yellow fever in the late 19th century. People who are not from the South and even people who are from the South may not be familiar with um, so it, throughout the 19th century, there's an annual, almost an annual visitation of yellow fever in the southeast, and it would create panic. People would flee New Orleans. They would flee Pensacola, Savannah to try to get further north where yellow fever seemed for whatever reason to not be as prevalent. And as people learned more about how to control yellow fever and that it was actually spread by mosquitoes, then they do understand more about it in a way that could lessen some of that panic. But these are the big stories of the 19th century especially smallpox. Then in the 20th century, I look at, of course, the 1918 flu. Many people have made comparisons to COVID in, the, in terms of the effect on the United States. Many people may not be aware that bubonic plague has affected the West Coast in the early 20th century. It's one of the chapters in the book I discussed that. I also look at polio, how there were various responses, primarily the vaccine, creation of the vaccine, and how that was distributed and then AIDS. And those are some of the chapters that I discuss in the book. And you mentioned this a little bit, but what are some of those patterns that you saw over and over again with individual Americans and with government reactions to outbreaks? One of the things that's unique about the United States in how it defends itself from epidemics that are either homegrown or spreading throughout the world and then come to the United States, one of the most unique features for the United States in terms of its public health system is how diffuse it is, how fragmented it is. It's one of the most fragmented public health systems in that the responsibility to control an outbreak wherever it starts 
is the responsibility of a local health department, state or local health department. It's not the responsibility of the CDC. It's not the responsibility of the federal government. It's the responsibility of the local health department. Well, we have more than 2,500 of those state, territorial, and tribal health departments. Some are very well run. Some are not. Some are well-funded. Some are not. And when you look to those to control an outbreak in a particular jurisdiction or at least to keep it from spreading further, the United States' defense is only as good as its weakest link. And that has been consistent throughout history. The second thing I would say about uh, what is unique is that because of this tradition of local control of how the response to an epidemic might be but also the responsibility to stop it – States have been very suspicious of other states' ability to protect them for a very, very long time. We first see this in the 19th century with yellow fever. I have a a chapter that's in fact called the shotgun quarantine because that's where the term first came from in the United States. And the shotgun quarantine was entire towns and sometimes at state lines would just shut their doors, close their gates to anyone coming through who was not already there. That was their method of stopping the spread of a disease. So it was protective, sort of protective quarantine for a state, for a town, but it's also very disruptive to the economy. It can be very inhumane. The first references I've ever seen in U.S. history to refugees as applied to U.S. citizens come from this time period. So people are trying to flee Pensacola, trying to flee New Orleans, and they can't go further north because they are kept out of these other towns. So something similar happens with bubonic plague and then later pneumonic plague on the West Coast. Governor of Texas, governor of New York, they decide California can't be trusted to contain this. They didn't think California was even being upfront about the extent of the problem that they had, and they don't want it spreading. So they would basically declare quarantines of preventing anyone and any any article of commerce from coming out of California. So this has been one constant throughout history is both this, we rely on other people to protect us. And then we also, we may be suspicious of whether they are being upfront about the extent of the problem or even have the capability to control it themselves. So those are the moments in U.S. history where you see calls for the federal government to come in and help, that only the federal government can really have the resources to reassure other states and then to help fight the problem. Yeah, And with the individuals, you mentioned also in the book that there's that distrust of government, too. That's part of that individualist mindset of America so that they don't always trust the government to come in and help. I think that's true. You know, one of the things that I – in terms of the more recent – outbreaks in the U.S. that I've seen is a misunderstanding of the role of the CDC, for example. So when there was an Ebola outbreak in Dallas or Ebola case in Dallas, and then it spread to two nurses in Dallas, in the early months, there was this thinking that this is the CDC's responsibility. You know, they're going to come in. They're going to set the rules for quarantines. They're going to – they can certainly help. They have to be invited in, right? They're really advising. They're not the ones on the ground accomplishing all of the things that have to be done. So there's different levels of distrust. At the end of the day, for most of us, it's our state and local government that's going to be the ones that we are primarily dealing with, at least with respect to things like what we would call social distancing measures. So those sorts of determinations are always local, maybe at the state level. So we rarely see federal involvement in that way. On the other hand, it's also true that there's distrust of government 
evident at all sorts of levels that I think stems from our deep belief in individual rights and individual self-determination. So that is yet another hurdle is if you distrust the very institutions that are telling you what uh, or advising you what you need to do to stay safe, then it's very hard to agree on any sort of plan that people would trust. So that's actually a really good lead in to our next question. Sustainable public health practices often rely on proactive measures like promoting vaccinations and healthy lifestyles. But does American individualism and the value we place on individual freedoms make these types of wide-scale public health measures uniquely difficult to enact? I think the answer is yes, and I think it depends on the situation. So I think what we saw with with COVID was early on distrust of science and a distrust of the message from the particular messenger that's not necessarily unique in the U.S., but what was unusual from my experience from reading historical study of other episodes was how closely it would be identified with a particular political party. So that I had – certainly in the 1918 flu, nobody liked face masks. We're in the city of Atlanta. The city of Atlanta has a face mask. If you're going to be outside, that was a way that the city council thought to keep – businesses open, essential businesses, they close theaters, they close churches, they close schools, and then ask the public to wear face masks outside. A few weeks later, the mayor basically overturned that order um, for a number of reasons. But again, these orders were unpopular, but they weren't necessarily unpopular because of your political affiliation. They might be unpopular for reasons quite apart from that. Nobody really liked them, right? So you had to have any city official, health official dealing with some of these past epidemics. They are working with their local populations, are either going to be trusted, followed or not. They're going to be up to the task of leadership or they're not. And those are the kinds of issues I think that just come with the form of government that we have. What is different, though, as I mentioned before, is, again, that sort of fragmented approach that we have to – We don't really have a national public health service as strong as it might be, but we also have this very strong tradition of local control. So if under this local control, the population is not happy with, say, how the mayor has arranged things, then the answer courts have always said, if you don't like these measures, the answer is at the ballot box. Do you feel like There's a method that's better when epidemics happen in the country, whether it's a state or local or a federal level. Do you think one is more effective than the other? Well, I think it depends on the issue. So local control is absolutely necessary for the kinds of local issues that – I mean, the country is just so big and so different, and you've got you know big cities and rural areas. So even in the 1918 flu, it never hit the whole country at once at the same time. Over two years, there's three waves. So you could sort of watch it go across and then come back later. But it was never all at the same time. So you do need local control so that you can calibrate your response based upon what is actually happening on the ground. On the other hand, there are some things that only the federal government can do well. And in COVID, I think we saw that. We saw the payoff from all of the investment in the scientific research that led to the mRNA vaccines. And eventually we saw that in distribution of some antivirals that would be specific to COVID. We didn't see that soon enough, or at least this again is sort of a lesson that we might learn from COVID, is that with respect to essential medical supplies, 
Okay, it's not inherently necessary that the federal government be in charge of them. But when there's a shortage and when you have to distribute fairly throughout the nation a limited supply of something, again, that's where the federal government can play a very, very helpful role because unless there is some plan or some mechanism to make these things happen in some fair fashion, what you end up with is what we've had so often in U.S. history, which is the richest states benefit. They get the lion's share of PPE, whatever it might be. The poorer states suffer for that. And and so there needs to be some kind of mechanism to help distribute things that are of limited supply. And I think, again, the federal government is really the only government level that's in a position to do that. Yeah, I think we saw that with COVID, of especially like, like with masks early on, that a lot of the advice was don't get masks, but it was don't get masks because the doctors need the masks. So there was a lot of that. And it sort of gave the wrong message to people early on that, oh, we don't need to wear masks. But it's like, well, we're trying to save them for the doctors. <laughs> yeah. And the CDC has even said you know, that there were some missteps there about messaging. But yes, at the end of the day, that was a very critical need. And just an aside, early months of COVID, I would get some calls about some of the legal issues just because I had been working on these before. But one of those was from the National Governors Association. And the Council for National Governors Association had a very interesting question. They said, can we, as a group of governors, regional or otherwise, band together to purchase PPE um, in a way that doesn't violate antitrust or other laws? And the answer was yes, they could. But the reason they were asking is early in the pandemic, there was no federal plan to use federal contracting power to keep prices down. So you saw states bidding against each other. Guess what? The prices go up. So the fact that there's this scramble among states, hospitals, local governments, nursing homes, everybody's trying to get it, that just keeps driving the price up and up and up. And so that's the point where it's more helpful if the federal government comes in and uses its contracting power. I'm not saying the government has to pay for it all, right? You can have some kind of mechanism to get that recouped at some point. But with that federal contracting power, you could prevent that. So in the absence of that, what the governors was asking essentially, and some of them went ahead to do this, it'd be regional coalitions like the Northeastern governors, would just band together and purchase uh, in a way that they had more purchasing power. Funding for public health measures tends to surge in the middle of crises, but then recede after. How can funding agencies be shown the benefits of continuous funding, especially during these quote-unquote down periods that lead to better long-term outcomes? That's a great question. I think one thing that we can do is to remind both state governments and the federal government of what were the problems we were working on before COVID. And here they were. They were tuberculosis, HIV, preventing the spread of hepatitis A, others, that these were keeping our public health officials, state, local level, busy full time. All right. COVID disrupted all of that. And we suspect now that tuberculosis rates may have gone up. The big worry is drug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, but there, there are so many pressing needs that we have constantly. So it's one thing to say we should fund our public health departments so that we're ready the next time. We weren't funding them enough for the very basic stuff that we depend on them to do. And I think that many citizens and, you know, for a long time, myself included, are not really familiar with what public health departments do. And so this might have been a good introduction to them. But we rely in the United States on local public health departments to identify 
tuberculosis cases to provide treatment, to offer testing to those who may have been exposed. The big worry is that drug-resistant tuberculosis develops. There was an, an incident in Atlanta that you may recall from 2014 or so, 2008 to 2014, there was a tuberculosis outbreak in Atlanta homeless shelter. And unfortunately, it was a drug-resistant version. Now, drug resistance happens or can happen when treatment is interrupted. Treatment for a tuberculosis typical case takes a year of daily medications. If you interrupt that for any reason, you can develop this drug resistance. It was very difficult to identify where the problem was, how to resolve it, and to make a long story short, after about 10 years, the CDC was able to trace that genotype of patient zero from the Atlanta homeless shelter, spread to 10 other states, 11 other states, and there were at least nine deaths, 160 people with that genotype. And so this is the sort of thing that if that local health department doesn't get on top of these problems, that's what you worry about in terms of spreading into other states and how do those other states protect themselves from any failures elsewhere. And again, it was not necessarily a failure. Atlanta is very, very good public health. It has, uh, you know, cooperation with Emory, with Rollins. So that it was not from lack of effort. It's just these things are very hard to contain sometimes to even know that you have an ep epidemic. So to even know you have an epidemic, you need to have a health department that's out there doing regular testing type work. That's not the CDC's job. That's not what they do. So in any event, that's, I guess, to answer your question, I would just say, First of all, states have got to increase funding for their own state and local health departments because these are the jobs they do. And funding had gone down for the last two decades, really, before COVID hit. And that was a problem. But even at the federal level, so the federal government steps in to help with tuberculosis. They have block grants available to states. It's not enough. Even that amount has not been increased in at least 15 years. So, you know, Congress needs to pay attention so that they can help the states who are either uh, too poor or, or just not organized well enough. And, you know, just stop with this sort of sobering fact. Some states spend a lot of money on their health departments and specifically with tuberculosis control because that's very time intensive, personnel intensive. The drugs are very expensive. And then some states spend zero on tuberculosis control and just take the amount that comes from the CDC, which admittedly is still not enough. But that's the situation. So states are the first ones that I would lobby to say we've got to spend more money on this. And then, of course, at the federal level, there are any number of needs that Congress would need to address. States that used to say have a tuberculosis program, as soon as the CDC started topping up the money, their contribution went down to zero. Correct. So that's a huge problem. <laughs> Due to population density, outbreaks tend to cluster in urban areas at first before spreading to smaller rural areas. How does this geographic divide factor into American outbreak responses? Well, I think just talking about the example from the Atlanta homeless shelter. So cities and especially big urban areas are going to have different presentation of problems and outbreaks than rural areas. But they may be connected. And let me just give an example. So 2017 to 18, hepatitis A, there's some outbreaks on the West Coast in cities. And it's actually sort of a sanitation sewage disease so that it's just unusual to see big outbreaks of hepatitis in industrialized nations. But in any event, there was uh, – you could watch that over the next two years move east – 
from the West Coast moving east. That's through rural areas, but also through urban areas as well. The biggest difference, I think, is that in urban areas, the health departments there are really geared towards handling populations in a way that may not be as may not have enough staff in terms of outbreaks that begin in rural areas. They can certainly begin in rural areas. Problem is you may not know about them until they have moved into larger urban areas where you're tracking them. But, you know, we saw this with COVID as well, but certainly in earlier epidemics, different parts of the country are just going to experience even the same pandemic differently based upon geography. With the current COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And I know from reading the book that this is not a new phenomenon. Can you talk about how that's been a thing in the past as well? Well, I think just in in terms of um, misinformation, I think in the past, what was more evident to me was not the misinformation so much as a struggle to understand what was going on. So for the 1918 flu, for example, the American Public Health Association gathers to try to debate what advice they have for the cities. There's no agreement among them on how effective face masks are going to be. But I think that's not misinformation. It's just lack of it. You know, there's scientific uncertainty at the outset of any epidemic. But I was also struck by the degree to which some members of the medical profession placed a lot of faith in the fact that they would get a vaccine. They never did, of course, for that. I mean, not for the flu. The flu vaccine would come, you know, three decades later. But that's what they said. We, we're not going to order face masks because we think there's a vaccine right around the corner. And, of course, that didn't, that didn't come. So it, it, there's just disagreement and scientific uncertainty. Certainly in the HIV beginnings of AIDS, that took years, you know, to really sort out what was going on. And that's not just limited to, to the United States. So I think the misinformation is something new in my book. It's not to the extent that it's misinformation that is sort of deliberately bypassing any sort of scientific scrutiny. Other than better funding, how can the U.S. better prepare for future outbreaks? I guess better funding is behind all of it. (laughs) I think better funding is behind a lot of it. But as we were discussing a bit earlier, it's not just the fact of more money, but how you use it. And so the federal level, I would think it would be extremely important to continue to fund scientific research, the kind of research that's gotten us such speedy and effective vaccines, to continue to do that and do only the things that the federal government can do particularly well. In terms of the state and local government, there's got to be some better mechanism perhaps to encourage either matching funds from the state or some kind of commitment of their own state's money to this problem. We can't just have some states say, well, we'll let the federal government fund our public health departments and not contribute any money on their own, while other states are contributing a lot of tax money. And how do they explain that to their constituents? So it's not an ideal situation, especially when when you, like we can see in the past, just examples of states taking punitive action against other states or areas that are not controlling their own outbreaks, right? And those can range anything from closing state borders, stopping cargo coming through. I mean, we certainly saw that in the 19th and the early 20th century. But states ought to have a better remedy. You know, there ought to be a way that when states can't protect themselves against what should have been perhaps contained elsewhere, 
why should they continue to spend money towards that if they see other states essentially stopping to spend money for that and just taking federal money? So I don't know the answer. I mean, clearly it is money, but it has to be some kind of a commitment to finding ways where state and local health departments can coordinate better with each other. I've been impressed by how many of them have managed to do so overcoming legal hurdles for tuberculosis control because you may need to trace the contacts of somebody who's in another state. Well, we have long experience of the dedicated public health officials just finding a way to contact their counterpart somewhere else and just making it work. And if we could find ways to make that process easier so that there really is more interaction between these, not taking away any of the independence of these local health departments, but making them more dependent on each other in some way would be helpful. And it's a whole system, too, because it's the doctor's offices and the hospitals are all involved in that as well, because they can pass a law that says you have to report this disease, but the hospital has to actually do the work and actually report it. And so if they're not or they're behind, then that can get everything messed up, too. Or you have populations that aren't going to end up in the hospital and they aren't going to end up at a doctor's office. So you need to do some amount of testing in incarcerated populations, in, in homeless populations, in other populations that might not necessarily show up in these places, too. And again, the public health departments protect us from everything from foodborne illness to sewage-borne illness to governing Legionnaires' disease. And there, there's so many things that go on behind the scenes in terms of how our public health departments protect us that we forget about. You know, we have a pandemic and that just, you know, overshadows everything. But it's this day-to-day work that's so critically important that we have to encourage and fund appropriately. Well, and you mentioned the prison populations, and you talked about that with one of the earlier epidemics. They did this similar with what they did with COVID to try to let people out early just to get them out of the prisons. And you also talked about other forgotten populations that are uncounted, like the Native American populations. It's also striking that throughout our history, the groups that have fared poorly during epidemics tend to be disfavored, marginalized, low socioeconomic status. They almost always come out worse off than anyone else, than the general population. And I think that was true during COVID as well. It took us a while to learn uh, about where populations were suffering more. And then, of course, when you have any kind of economic impact, which any epidemic will cause economic impact, but shutting down non-essential businesses and so forth, again, it's the people who are at the margin in socioeconomic status, that they suffer the most from that. And so it was so important for Congress to pass, as they did early on, lots of coronavirus relief funds. Okay, so everything from the moratorium on evictions to other means of supporting these populations, either directly or indirectly. And and one reason that is so important is if you were going to ask people to voluntarily stay home in quarantine because they've been exposed or because they're sick and you want them to do that and that's how you stop the spread, right? You've got to make it financially possible for them to do that. You've got to make sure they've got access to food. So those are the kinds of expenses and the considerations I think that we would do well to learn from again sort of going forward is that always look for that, you know, make sure we know what populations are suffering because if you don't know that until it's too late, well, then it's too late. So uh, other than what we've talked about, are there any other lessons that you think you 
like people to take away from your book? Well, I think it's a useful perspective to have that this historical perspective on where the United States has been. So to the extent that COVID-19 came as a shock to everybody, and it certainly (laughs) came as a shock to everyone, thinking back over the long history of the United States, you see that these are the sorts of problems that we do have the ability to overcome. And we may stumble at the beginning and we may have many, many disagreements along the way, but we see this acrimonious debate and we need to realize that that's just part of the way we run things here is elected officials are in charge. So you see governors making decisions different from the governors of other states and that's the way our system has worked for better or for worse. And so I think the historical perspective is one thing that I think would be a useful takeaway from my book. I was just curious, since we are talking about all this, like your thoughts on the monkeypox outbreak, I feel like the miscommunication of it is a big hand in like the whole epidemic too, whether it's through officials or just like scientists or whatever, you know what I mean? In terms of this early warning, we knew about it being spread through in Europe before Mm -hmm. it came here. Gotcha. Same thing happened with COVID, right? Like we were watching, Mm -hmm. horrified, like what Italy, Britain, and it's like, why did we expect anything different here? Mm -hmm. You know, we're just watching. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so monkeypox, it's been around. It's the spread, like why now in terms of before? I mean, who knows? I just think that science will have to catch up with that. But it's fascinating to me that it's so closely related to smallpox that smallpox vaccine is now sort of a thing that the government strategically wants to make sure we have enough of. I mean, there's certainly a small stockpile of vaccine that we created after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks to be prepared for bioterrorism. But as I understand it, from a lot of reasons, that's not ideal for addressing monkeypox. So I think what we're looking at is once again, sort of a limited supply of vaccines. Now, maybe demand will stay low, but we certainly have a limited supply of vaccines available. And so the government would need, again, to help states come up with some kind of fair distribution mechanism. It's interesting, too, because, again, with with smallpox eradication, it became common not to vaccinate for smallpox. So people above a certain age, including my own age, I'm pretty well protected from monkeypox, according to the science that I've read because of that smallpox vaccine so many years ago. But once it was eradicated, why would you do it? It's just that monkeypox is so closely related, the vaccine happens to work. I think that's why we're sort of talking about that particular issue. So I guess to end on a little bit of a lighter note, what was the first book you remember reading and what are you currently reading? I would say the first book or books that I remember reading, I'm reading along with my parents who are reading to me Dr. Seuss books of all variety, Hop on Pop, Green Eggs and Ham, all of those. I remember those and others. And I remember being so proud when I could read the book back to them. So that's my earliest memory of reading books. What am I reading right now? I'm reading a book by George Saunders called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Saunders has written other books, but he has also taught for many years courses in Russian literature and the Russian short story. And so this book is really a sort of reflection on not just the writing process, but what you learn from the Russian short story in particular. And I just find it a very fascinating dive into literature. I was a history major and then, of course, studied studied law after that and I've worked in public health. And so literature is not of the Russian short story, for example, is not something that I'd ever spent a lot of time thinking about. So this is my way of kind of going back to college. And I just I love his writing style. And I think it's like a breath of fresh air. 
That's awesome. That's interesting. I, I have an English degree, and I don't know that much about Russian sorcery, so we, I, I didn't look into it that much. But yeah, me either. I will check that book out. Professor Price, thank you for speaking with us again for the podcast. And listeners can certainly learn more about this topic, and there's much more than we talked about here. From the book, Plagues in the Nation, How Epidemics Shaped America, you can get that, of course, at your local Gwinnett County Public Library branch or at your favorite bookstore. Is there anywhere else that they can go to find out more about you or the book? Well, I have a website, plaguesinthenation.com. So it's essentially the title of the book, plaguesinthenation.com. And on that website, I have included a lot of sources, reading sources that go beyond what's in the book and goes beyond the book's bibliography. I had so much more material than my publisher would let me put in the book at the end of the day. So the website became a place for that. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library about authors, their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. And thanks again to Professor Polly Price for the great conversation. You can find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts or follow them in your podcast app of choice. Thank you for listening. Connect, learn, and grow with your Gwinnett County Public Library.